0: All right, question number one today for the uh, 20 questions, our Friday Q&A is from Doug, who says, do you have any thoughts about the Gospel of Thomas? And yes, I have some thoughts about the Gospel of Thomas. Before I launch into answering that question with some detail, actually a good amount of detail today, I just want to remind you guys what you just clicked on. This is the weekly Q&A for... For you, ultimately. I mean, I'm Pastor Mike Winger here, a pastor in sunny Southern California, and I'm hoping to answer your questions to the, at least to the best of my ability, admitting it if I don't know the answer to something, and trying to limit my confidence to how much I actually am aware of. But the goal is to help you learn to think biblically about everything, and by covering kind of like random issues and questions and biblical topics that come up, we can address them. You can, you can learn, even if you don't always agree with my answers, you can learn sort of more and more about the process of working through life's issues and the questions that come up from a biblical perspective to try to be faithful to God, faithful to Christ, and to honor him with our minds. So, <clears throat> question one from Doug. Do you have any thoughts about the gospel of Thomas? And here's my thoughts, Doug. Um, when I first heard about the gospel of Thomas many, many years ago, you know, I was kind of a noob to this, this sort of idea of, of, you know, I just thought sort of the new Testament is just there. I didn't realize that there were these, <clears throat> these other gospels. They're actually called gospels like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Judas, the infancy gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter. There's, there's a big long list of them. But when I heard of this and this, this might be the context where that you've heard of it, Doug, possibly it was it was as though uh what we had in the Gospel of Thomas were these other books that are not in the Bible. It was as though we had other like authentic forms of Christianity that were sort of selectively left out purposely left out of the of the Bible so that we have kind of like a conspiratorial version of Christianity, just the approved of and usually people they like to say this happened at the Council of Nicaea oh well at the Council of Nicaea you know that was that was when we had um uh the 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 selection of the books, and you get this vision of old men at a table sort of picking books to include in the Bible and throwing other books away kind of arbitrarily or because of their own agendas. Okay, this is so not true. The Gospel of Thomas is one of many, uh, we'll we'll call them Gnostic texts, and the Gospel of Thomas is basically a non-Christian work done to try to hijack Christianity, like the way that modern Jehovah's Witness theology or modern... LDS or Mormon theology tries to hijack Christianity and claim it, you know, they have a new religion, but they're trying to claim it's Christian. So this is what Gnostics, that, that's a particular reg- religious group, <clears throat> were trying to do in the second and third centuries. They're trying to take Christianity. It seems like there was something like that happening, you know, in the first century as well. So it does claim it was written by the, uh, the apostle Thomas. But it's actually a forgery. The Gospel of Thomas is probably written mid-2nd century at the earliest. And I'm, I'm going to link an article down below for people who want more data on this. My friend Wesley Huff wrote an article on the Gospel of Thomas and he, uh, he has that information there. You guys can check it out why it's dated so late. Why is it so, you know, it's long after Thomas was dead. Only one full copy exists and four like fragmented copies exist of the Gospel of Thomas. We don't have a lot of data to go on. But basically, it's a sayings gospel. It doesn't actually record the life of Jesus. It's just... Um, unconnected statements, sayings, supposedly from Jesus. And some of them are actually borrowed from, like, Matthew and Luke. They're actually quotes from Matthew and Luke. Now, Matthew and Luke were, were, in all reasonableness, written long before the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is borrowing from them. But it's the stuff that he adds that's totally not like Jesus at all. It's very Greek. It's not Jewish. And it's weird stuff. So... Let me give you an example or a few examples of quotes from the gospel of Thomas. You guys listen to this and ask yourself if this sounds consistent with a first century Jewish teacher, which Jesus was, um, or if it sounds consistent with the, with the uh, statements of Jesus in the, in the actual real gospels. <clears throat> Here's one. If the flesh came into being because of spirit, that is a marvel. But if spirit came into being because of body, that is a marvel of marvels. Yet I marvel at how this great wealth has come to dwell in this poverty. This doesn't even sound like Jesus. Jesus has a similar, you know, way of speaking and the things that he says. And they're consistent with the, the context of the first century, not these later Greek issues is what they're dealing with here. Here's another one. Lucky is, this is from verse 7 in the Gospel of Thomas. Lucky is the lion that the, that the human will eat so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat and the lion still will become human. Yeah, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> like this is obviously not part of the beliefs of Jesus or, or the first Christians. This is added much later. Weird stuff. They believe that the body, the Gnostics, they believe that the body was bad. The whole physical world was evil. Uh, this is different than say what the New Testament teaches that our bodies were fallen. So we have sin is is, is you know, in all the mix of all that I am. But rather, we're still looking for like a new resurrected body, uh, an incorruptible body. So we do want a body. Bodies aren't bad inherently. It's just the fact that they're fallen that is bad. And so God's going to redeem that, going to fix the fall, and we'll still have a physical existence forever. But Gnosticism thought bodies were evil. And that's why you get the verse I just read. Check out this. here's, Here's one that gives us a clue as to why they put Thomas's name on the book. So keep in mind this. If you're Gnostics who want to steal Christianity and want to rework it and reimagine it to, to be your weird beliefs about there being all these different the play Roma and all these weird things the Gnostics believed back then. Uh, but you wanna you want to say it's Christian, you have a real big issue. And the big issue is this. All these Christian gospels and the and the writings of the apostles, they're still around and Christians know what they say. So everyone's gonna know that you're making stuff up. So solution, here was their apparent solution. We'll write our own gospel. We'll pretend it came from one of the apostles. And then he had the real information. He had the real knowledge. And that explains why we have this secret info that none of the Christians knew before now. So this is this is actually present in the gospel of Thomas in verse 13. Listen to this, how it sets Thomas up as a secret disciple who knew secret information that the other apostles not only didn't know, but they, they would have been upset about. Jesus, it says in verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me who I am like. So Peter said to him, you are like a righteous angel. (laughs) This is obviously not, (laughs) not what happened. Matthew said to him, you are like a wise philosopher. Now keep in mind, Peter is behind the gospel of Mark and Matthew is behind the gospel of Matthew. And Thomas's gospel is going to say weird things. So Thomas said to him, master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying who you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master, but because you have drunk. Now, Jesus actually says he is their master in other places, but okay. And he says, because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring, which I have measured out. And he, Jesus, took him, Thomas, and withdrew and told him three things. When Thomas returned to his companions. So now Thomas knows secret information that Matthew and and uh, Peter don't know, according to this saying. And he... Um, And when he returned to his companions, they asked him, what did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, if I tell you one of the things which, which he told me, you will pick up stones and throw them at me. A fire will come out of the stones and burn you up. Ah, gospel of Thomas, the community that wrote this book that pretends it's from Thomas. They have sayings that disagree with Matthew and Peter people are going to say hey how do you justify your weird unbiblical unchristian unchristlike teachings and they're going to say oh well thomas he once was pulled aside and given three special secrets and he didn't tell them to matthew and peter cuz they would have just persecuted him so so we are revealing it to you now but they never actually reveal to you the secrets in detail in the gospel of thomas it's very vague the idea is to create a bridge a gospel like this you're asking my opinion to create a bridge from a Christian who believes in in Jesus and the Gospels over to this weird Gnostic stuff. So they'll say, we have the secret teachings of Jesus come, coming through Thomas. They won't write the, de- se- the secret teachings down, but you have to like become an initiate. You raise up in levels in the, in the secret religion, and then they start to reveal to you the secrets as you get further along. And um, yeah, there, there you go. The Gospel of Thomas is, a, is an ancient cult attempt at hijacking Jesus and Christianity. And those who think that it's like a an alternate gospel that was deliberately left out, like it's legitimate, is it's just no, not true. All right, we're going to go to question number two. Before I do that, um, and these are all your questions coming straight from the live chat. Now, um, I just want to let you guys know that we do have the Bible Thinker mugs available if you want one. I'm not making a penny off of these. Um, the majority of the of the funds are going to go to the potter who actually makes them. Who just he's a fan of the ministry and he wanted to do this, but but five dollars from each purchase goes to, I get to, this is my choice. I just want to take that amount and give it to some cause. So I know of a a couple, a missionary couple, at least for the time being, all of the money that comes in the extra five bucks per mug that will go directly to them to help support them because they can't be supported through normal channels because they are in a country that doesn't allow missionaries that's all i can say (laughs) so if you want one there's a link down below i think they're 30 bucks a piece check on shipping details if you're outside the u.s it's complicated and weird and i don't have the details um all right let's go to the next question amy burks purposely entrusted asks the question is is it within biblical freedom for a denomination like the salvation army to replace water baptisms with wearing a uniform instead and not to practice communion regularly as well um, okay. So it, I I didn't even know, Amy, maybe I'm a little ignorant on the Salvation Army. Are they like an actual denomination? Like, are they like a real, I thought they were mostly just like a parrot church, like non-church, um, not, not an actual structured church with services that they were just like a, a uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for like you know they just help people they, they do they do charity and help the poor and that kind of thing that was my impression of the salvation army so let me let me switch out the term salvation army and and just say this if a church gets rid of baptism and then they say we're going to wear uniforms instead and if they don't practice communion on some some kind of regular schedule that that is not within biblical freedom um the baptism issue is commanded. We are to do this. People must be baptized. They can still be saved if they're not baptized, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. You know, like the, an analogy I gave, I think this was on a stream the other day, or maybe it was in, in a private convo. I don't remember. Um, me and my wife, we uh, we we live together, right? Like that's kind of a, a good thing to do for married couples. Now, do you have to live together to be married? Well, I mean, technically you can be married and not live together, but it's weird and unhealthy. That's how baptism is, right? Like, it's weird and unhealthy if I don't get baptized. Jesus, he had all of his followers get baptized. All the disciples got baptized. They went out, they preached the gospel, they baptized people. Uh, Where Paul went, he may not have been the one doing the baptisms all the time, but he definitely told people to be baptized. So it's just part of what it means to say, I'm committing to follow Christ, go get baptized. And communion uh, should happen at least on, on some kind of basis. It probably happened pretty much... I think it probably happened every week in the early church. I think it happened very regularly. Um, I don't know that we're required to have it happen that much, but maybe that's a good idea. You know, like at least have it on a regular basis of some kind. And if that's once every six months, at least communion has a place in your fellowship. That's important. And so, yeah, I I think, um, I don't think that's a freedom issue. I think a church is making a real mistake if they don't do those things. I just don't know that the Salvation Army is actually a church, is it? You guys, Maybe you guys know more about it than I do, so... I'll just uh, offer those comments. Vinay Oguri has a question. How is God impartial when he makes some people with disabilities and some, uh, while some normal? When some people are born into abject poverty while some are in riches. And he gives some a relatively easy life while some a miserable life. Okay, so um, let me say a couple things about this. Uh, impartiality, at least in the biblical sense, I think it means something different than what you might be thinking of Vinay. So Vinay, when, when we think of impartial, uh, it has to do with equal treatment. Um, you know, it, it, the idea is like, you know, to give you the best analogy probably for it is like under law. So that if like, say a rich person gets a speeding ticket, <clears throat> they pay $70 for that speeding ticket. A poor person gets a speeding ticket. They pay 70 bucks that that's impartiality. That's just like, it's, I mean, we're not partial like a, a, a white person gets pulled over they get treated the same as the black person that gets pulled over because that's impartiality that, that's that's the idea of impartiality. Um, I'm not gonna treat you better or worse based on say race or 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 level of income or whatever other thing. you know I like you better um, So in James, the book of James, the church is being rebuked by James because they're allowing the rich people who come to the fellowship to like sit in the front of the church and have like the best seats. And in other words, they're kind of reserving these seats for rich people. This is considered a very bad thing because it, it shows that you have like higher rank or you're, you're, you're better off because you're wealthy. But impartiality doesn't mean that we give everyone uh, the same life experience or that God gives everyone the same life experience. So, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's simply in God's prerogative. I'm going to say things that might be offensive to some people. But if you're offended by what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to suggest that your offense is is a dangerous issue of pride on your part. I know those are those are strong words. <laughs> I really mean it, though. That that there's a good chance that pride is is causing you to be offended by this. But it's in God's prerogative. It's in His will. It's in, it's in His choosing whether you have, uh, whether you are crippled or not crippled, whether you are rich or you are poor. <clears throat> now there may be other human factors that cause this. Like if somebody is, you know, the, the mother's an alcoholic and she's drinking and then the child is born with like fetal alcohol syndrome. I'm not going to be like, God, you caused that. Why did you cause that? There's obviously a human cause that's there. But at the same time, like, you know, we have the story of Jesus where the man's born blind. He's born blind and Jesus comes and heals them. And then the disciples ask, like, why was this man born blind? Was, you know, was it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And this is like a weird theological question from back then they're like wait you know maybe he sinned in the womb this is apparently what some people thought and then there's other groups that thought well maybe it was his parents who sinned but notice what they're all assuming he was born blind because of sin you know somebody's sin caused him to be born that way and jesus just says he was this was for the glory of god here's a thought maybe your wealth your poverty your your abilities or your disabilities are in some way for the glory of god and they're not about you getting what you deserve, which makes it a question of partiality, right? Do I deserve that versus he doesn't? But rather a question of God bringing his glory out of our various different lives. So partiality is how God responds to the way you respond to life. It's not the life God gives you. It's not the wealth he, he has you start off with or the mental troubles or the physical issues. So that, yeah, that's just not what the word impartial means in that regard. Um, God makes the blind as well as the seeing he creates us all. And in a sense, we all just have tremendous degrees to be grateful for. I'll add one last thought. I said this connected to potentially pride. I'll ask one, I'll I'll add one last thought to connect to that for you guys to consider. And this is, this is the idea that, um, because somebody else down the street has more money than me, that I deserve the same amount of money or that they deserved it in the first place. Either I see a certain quality of life as something I'm owed by God or, in, in which case I might get bitter and upset that he's not providing me with this quality of life, or I realize that everything I have, I've been given by God, that I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Like I just suddenly, here I am, I exist. And the the, the life I have, the abilities I have, even if they're less than someone else's, the, the, the hardships I have, the blessings I've got, like I don't deserve to have anything. I don't deserve existence. Like existence itself feels like a grace of God to me. I I think that this is something that humbles me when I go, wait a minute, you know, even if I was disabled, even if I have chronic issues in one way or another, I still have so much to be thankful and grateful for that I shouldn't be going to God saying, you owe me a better life. You owe me this, you owe me that. Human entitlement, looking to God thinking you owe me this, it misses two things. One, it's God's well, maybe three things. It's God's will that matters. It's his plan that matters, not just what I want. Two, I don't deserve these things. They're just grace from God. I don't deserve them. Three, and this is huge. It misses that this is only temporary. There's a final kingdom, a final glory, a resurrected state where I will be there for all eternity. And I will see this as just life lessons on the path of getting there, right? This is part of that growth. Anyway, I'll move on to the next question. I hope that some of those thoughts will help you. Yeah. Yeah. God, God's good, and um, a humble heart will help us process those, those challenges. Judah Matthews has a question. How do we practically use Matthew seven fifteen through 20 to discern? People often define fruit as whatever they like. Some call it being drunk in the Spirit. Uh, some call being drunk in the Spirit good fruit. Some say telling people to repent is judgy and bad fruit. Okay, let's look at the passage together. This is Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Verse I hear used an awful lot. Let's see if we can shed some light on it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, what I'm looking for in the passage, you know, whenever you do this, this talk about thinking biblically, right? When you have a question about a Bible passage, first try to find the answer in the passage. Like, don't just go, here's what sounds good to me. Like, just think, is there any indication in the context of the verses that like helps me figure out what this thing is about? I think here there is. So he says, beware of false prophets. And then he gives descriptions of them. They come in sheep's clothing, what is the implication there? Is that they're pretending to be godly, they're pretending to be good, sheep's clothing, right? The sheep being like the ones who are following. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm I'm really a good, good person and a good Christian. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So that's Jesus's full description of them. Outwardly they look good. Inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves means uh, okay. In the context of, I'm a sheep. You're a sheep. Hey, let's let's worship the Lord together. But really, I'm a wolf, meaning I want to eat the sheep. The false prophets want to somehow consume the people they're prophesying to. They want to benefit from those they're supposed to be serving. They want, whether it's wealth, or they want to draw followers after themselves so they could have like pride pats on the back to feel good about themselves. They want to build their own personal kingdom. I was talking to, was it, um, Alan Parr about this recently. Uh, we recently started connecting and I like the guy. Alan Parr is a really big and uh, really helpful YouTube channel doing Christian content, and um, we were talking about this, and it was it was interesting how like you know me and him have the same heart about say YouTube. We want to see more and more Christians on YouTube, and we don't care if they grow channels bigger than ours. Like we don't care, <laughs> and how um, we both are pretty comp- like strong. This is kind of like a a pet peeve of ours is is wanting to hold down other people that might serve the Lord in great ways because you feel like you want your kingdom to grow more than theirs. Well, that's, that's a symptom of a ravenous wolf, right? Like I'm not really about the kingdom of God. I'm not really about the health of the sheep. I'm about getting myself fat and using Christians to do it. So that's the symptom. Okay. Now when he says, then that's the context They're outwardly sheep's clothing, inwardly ravenous wolves. Then he says you'll recognize them by their fruits. So the fruits to me, the fruit of someone who's a ravenous wolf will be waiting to see how he treats the sheep. Uh, is is he trying to benefit and profit off the sheep? Is that his goal? Is that the agenda? I want to make myself. Um, we, we you think of pride, power, right? And then the other sad one is s- sexual things. These are the three things that people fall from. It's it's either self glory or pride. It's it's uh, money related, like, um, or it's going to be sexual things. So. Gold, glory, and girls is the old way that I used to hear it summarized. So I want to look and see, like, is is this pastor becoming all about himself? Is is he more interested in defending his reputation and making himself look good and controlling the way people think about him than he is about spreading the gospel of Christ? Um, maybe he's a ravenous wolf. And these things, these guys exist because these guys. Guys like this push themselves, or or ladies, they push themselves into leadership positions. They advocate for themselves. They're like aggressively trying to get into these high up positions and then stay there, and then and then secure loyal people around them who will who will kind of like be the buffer so that criticisms can't come in. And uh, and there's there's godly and ungodly ways to do this. So knowing them by their fruits requires a couple things it requires that you have an actual relationship with this person. Why? Because outwardly, they are—they come in sheep's clothing. So if a false prophet, if they just visit you for a day and then leave, you may not really know if they're legit or not, right? But if, if you know them, if you get to spend time with them, if they're part of your community, if they're staying in your home and you see that their life is consistent with the values of Christ, not just for 12 hours while they're like, they're like on, right? They're 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 faking it really well for a few hours or for a day or two, but they're with you for like months. This is this is um why later on I think to connect this to um church history. The Didache, I think it was the Didache, which is written around 95, which is uh, con- consider this like a um, early discipleship manual. Not not written by one of the apostles or anything, but it's like you could see early Christians using it. Um, One of the things that they warned against, if I remember correctly, is the idea of a prophet who is just a traveling prophet, but they're not going to stay in your town that you don't know them personally. And, and, and this is, this is something to realize like Christians, people will try to use your, your love of Christ to fleece you, right? To, to, to feed themselves, their pride, their, their desire for wealth. I mean, this is Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, it fits this description perfectly. Look at the man. He's like, I don't know if he's a billionaire yet or not, but he's uh, he has millions and millions of dollars. And it's clearly about building up his own reputation, making himself look good and important, and um, fleecing the flock. It's absolutely about fleecing the flock. I look at other people and I go, and I'm curious, like, yeah, why are you off of ties? Why are you making $700,000 a year off of people donating to your ministry? Like what? (laughs) And so, um, I'm not saying, you know, pastors have to be in poverty, but people who do ministry, especially the kind of ministry I'm doing right here online, you guys don't really know me that well. Okay. I mean, hopefully you do, you know, but what if I'm just really good at faking it? What if all this is a front? You would only know if you got to know me and you got to watch the fruit of my actual life, the way I live out my life. So Joseph Smith, is, he's an example of this, right? Joseph Smith, you read some of his stuff, you hear some of the stories about him, he looks really good. You look deeply into his life and you find he's like sleeping with different women. He's like hiding secret marriages behind his wife's back. Um, all kinds of other things that are going on, forgeries. You have to get deep into the person's life to see that, that there's a cancer that's there. So that, that's how I would use that. Now, when people want to use it, uh, Judah Matthews, when people want to use this to say, um, being drunk in the spirit is good fruit. Okay. I, I disagree. I, I think being drunk, if the fruit of the spirit is self-control, which is what scripture tells me, I have a hard time thinking drunk in the spirit is even a thing. On the other hand, they like to say, well, Acts chapter two, it said that they thought they were drunk and it doesn't say they were acting drunk. It says they were accused of being drunk. That's a far cry from acting like they're drunk, which is weird. Um, On the other thing you said, some people say that telling people to repent is judgy and bad fruit. This sounds like we're judging things based on how comfortable we are with it instead of like, is it biblically consistent? That should be my first question. And telling people to repent is very biblical. All right, we're gonna go to the next question and this is number five. Patmos Isle says, Jesus said, unless one is born, hold on one second. Okay, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Does Luke thirteen twenty eight imply born again doesn't mean indwelt by the Holy Spirit since it wasn't possible until Jesus came? Let's look at the passage together. Um, I don't know if it was Luke Luke thirteen twenty eight in that place. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just trying to see if if I miss, if I'm misreading something here. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Okay. Uh maybe the connection is that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are going to be in the kingdom of God. And if they were and they were we would say they were not indwelt by the spirit because the 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 for people who want the the quick quick and dirty explanation of this, um uh, there was people had experiences with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament throughout But it wasn't until after the death and resurrection of Christ And then he gives the church the Holy Spirit where people become indwelt by the Holy Spirit That means permanent constant and forever relationship were sealed with the Spirit Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't have that experience. So how could they be in the kingdom of God? Maybe that's where the question is. I'll read it one more time to make sure Jesus said unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God does Luke thirteen twenty eight imply born again doesn't mean indwelt by the Spirit since it wasn't possible until Jesus came. Okay, so I I don't think born again, uh, I'll answer the question now. I don't think born again means indwelt by the Spirit. I think born again includes indwelt by the Spirit. Right, so I I have a newness of life that this is where he puts his Spirit in us. He takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He, um, you know, it is part of the relational thing of becoming children of God. We're born again into the family of God now your sons and daughters of of God so born again does include this idea it seems to me in scripture so how do I reconcile this with the idea that Abraham Isaac and Jacob can be in the kingdom of God if they weren't indwelt with the spirit right you have to be born again to be in the kingdom if you're born again you're indwelt how are they part of the kingdom they seem like they weren't I think the answer is um this is future this is future. Um, there will be, this is a future time and place, gnashing and teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom. This is a future time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in that kingdom, but right now they're waiting on that kingdom. So my understanding of this, and not everyone agrees, okay? This isn't like every Christian in the world agrees with Mike here. This is my understanding of it, is that after uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when they died, they, they went like down, so to speak, probably actually into some, like, I don't even know how this works out spiritually, localities, spiritual localities. I don't know how that works. But they go into be, what, what they ended up calling Abraham's bosom. And Jesus calls Abraham's bosom, which is which is a weird and clumsy translation. The idea is when other people die they go to the, and, and they have faith in God, they go to the same place Abraham went where they're being comforted and they're waiting. They're waiting. They're not indwelt by the Spirit yet, but they've died in faith. And now they're simply waiting. When Christ dies... And rises again at some point there he goes and he preaches to all the spirits who've gone before to show them who he is he's now the judge of the living and the dead at that point he takes those who've been waiting into the kingdom of god abraham isaac and jacob now become indwelt by the spirit so when jesus was saying these words in luke 13 they're not yet indwelt when jesus dies and rises again gives the spirit to the church some somewhere in that same time period they become indwelt as well So that later on, those who've rejected Christ, saying that they're children of Abraham, they'll look over and they'll see Abraham filled with the Spirit. He's a Christian in the the full sense of the term. And they'll look and they'll be like, I'm weeping. I I missed it. So I hope that helps. Number six. Oh, and no more questions, you guys. We got all 20 questions for today. So, uh, I mean, if you want to keep putting them in the live chat, you can. But I won't be able to answer any more than the 20 we've selected. Woolpack says, hey, Mike. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, it talks about God not wanting sacrifices or burnt offerings. What does this mean? Uh, does this mean those were optional? Or is it just talking about the personal, the person's heart in giving? Thanks so much. Awesome. Okay, so let's look at this passage. Um, I, I get it. I don't know about you guys. I get excited about these kinds of questions because I'm like remembering times when maybe I was confused about this issue. And now that I have clarity, hopefully it'll help someone else all right um let's first let's look at psalm 51 verses 16 and 17 see why there could be some questions about this you will not delight in sacrifice or i would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh god you will not despise so the the things god won't despise broken spirit broken and contrite heart now is this here's the question is this situational like just in this particular scenario the psalmist is like right now in my scenario, you don't want a sacrifice. You want me to have a, a, a humble heart? Or is this like a blanket statement that God just doesn't like sacrifice? That's how Brian Zahn takes it in his very heretical book, um, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. He takes this to mean that God doesn't like sacrifice, and that there's actually an internal debate in the Bible. Some prophets saying God wants sacrifice, some saying he doesn't, and then Jesus weighs in and goes, he doesn't, he hates sacrifice. So, um, no, that's not the case. Let's look at it now in the context of the Judaism in which it was written. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now, a little bit of knowledge of the, the, the history of David and a little bit of knowledge of the Old Testament law, and this psalm makes total sense, and then it just drives you straight to Jesus. So let me explain. Uh, David he cheats on, uh, well, you, cheats on his wives. Yeah, awkward, weird stuff with Bathsheba, who is married to a guy named Uriah. So he has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, this woman who has a husband Uriah, who's a good guy, solid guy. David then to cover up the affair, long story short, gets Uriah killed like he's not the one who does it with his hands, but he makes it happen So he's guilty of murder Nathan the prophet goes to david who's supposed to be this godly king of israel And he says to them says to him like you've done this. This is a wicked horrible thing and everyone knows it david then repents Okay, it doesn't fix the problem, but he repents This is the psalm david wrote when he's repenting of murder and adultery Now here's where the law comes in and gives clarity so you can understand why this is happening in psalm 51 Under the Old Testament law, there's a number of sacrifices. You do this sin, you you bring this sacrifice. You do that sin, you bring that sacrifice. But when it comes to murder, there is no sacrifice in the law that you can give. Like if you try to offer sacrifices, it's an insult to God because there is no sacrifice for murder. Murderers die. So in Psalm 51... David cries out for mercy. He knows under the law he should die. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, right? Not according to the law. He just wants mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, God, I, you're right. When you condemn me, I am justly condemned, but I'm praying for mercy anyways. David's an example now of someone who, um, even under the law, he's condemned and there's no way out, and he still appeals to some other way of getting God's mercy, which is going to be ultimately Jesus. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother Did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, he's not looking for the, the hyssop where they might um, do this through the, through the law, where they offer sacrifices. He's like, God, use your own hyssop. There's got to be some sacrifice you offer. There's got to be some cleansing you can give me apart from the law. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a a willing spirit. He's probably talking here uh, of his anointing to be king. He was anointed and to be the king of Israel and he doesn't want to be ousted like Saul was before him. Then I will teach the trans, uh, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, right? Because he committed murder. So this is the sin. It's murder. Oh, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you, de- you, um, and here we go. For you do not, oh, I just, there we go. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Now you get the context. There is no sacrifice in the law I can give to fix what I've done. I'm just praying for your mercy, for you to do, you provide something for me. You will not be pleased with burnt, with a burnt offering. Not right now. Not, not with murder. There is no offering under the law. The sacrifices of God, and here's all I can offer God. And this is our situation in Christ. All you can offer God is a broken spirit where you're going to yield to God. I'm giving up, Lord. I'm not going to fight you anymore. I'm just yielding to you. A broken and contrite heart humble admitting that you deserve judgment, but you just are calling out for mercy. So um, then, then if Dave is restored, then he can get back to doing like proper sacrifices, burnt offerings, bowls on the altar, that that, the appropriate way, because he's still in that time of the Old Testament law. So to answer your question, um, and I'll read it one more time, In, uh, in this passage in Psalms, it talks about God not wanting sacrifices or burnt offerings. Does this mean those were optional? Nope, it meant they were not allowed to happen in the case of murder. Or is it just talking about the person's heart and giving? Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, how does this fit with the theology of Jesus? We see that, and Hebrews talks about this in detail. That's the next book I'm teaching, by the way, it's Hebrews. But it basically says, hey, um, the law was insufficient to really deal with the sins of mankind. Jesus, he's the ultimate sacrifice. And he, he gives us forgiveness, even from stuff that you couldn't get forgiveness on uh, from under the law. Jesus brings the full grace of God. The law shows us that you, through your works or through your own sacrifices, you just can't get it. You can only bring a broken and contrite heart. You just repent and believe. It's beautiful stuff. A.D. Chan says, in Luke 9.1, Jesus gives the twelve power and authority over all the demons. And in Luke 9.40, a man tells Jesus the disciples could not cast out the demons possessing his son. Is this a contradiction? Let's look at the passage. Luke 9.1. And he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So they go out. This is um, not at the end of the ministry. This is like the middle of Jesus's ministry. They go out and they do this. Then in Luke 9, 40, let's find that verse. Um, There's a man who has a child and the child is demon possessed and... He takes the child to the disciples, but they're unable to, to, to cast him out. So in verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Why couldn't they? Well, um, in, in the, you remember when we ask questions, we look in the immediate context to see if there's an answer. Well, Jesus has complaints about them, specifically faithless and twisted. There was something wrong in their motivations perhaps and there was something wrong in their faith there's there's faith and there's some kind of twisting you know he gave them a mission and and the ability to fulfill it but there's something compromised in them the power that they were provided is not lacking but they're not accessing it right um i'll use a shooting analogy i hope this doesn't offend anybody here um it's just an analogy (laughs) i'm not shooting anybody um but you know with with uh with shooting, you know, when somebody gives you a gun, you have the power to hit the target. But are you going to ob- observe the basics of how to aim properly and, you know, how to properly pull the trigger? And so you're, you are you you need to follow the basics or it doesn't work. Now, you can complain that the gun doesn't have the power to hit the target, but that's not true. It's really something's wrong with the person. So we're the weak link here and the disciples are the weak link. But there is um, um, more details. Um and it's not, I guess, in Luke, I think it's in Mark where Jesus goes on to say, uh, this kind does not come out except by fasting and prayer. Now that's interesting. So, so you were given, he, they were given the power, but what do you mean by power? It's not like they like, like, like some anime where they're like, build up a fireball and shoot it at the person and the demon flies out. Like not that kind of power, rather like an authority. Like I will give you the authority to declare to the demons, um, on my behalf to depart. But he, so there's faithlessness, there's a twisted, there's some kind of perversion that might be going on and messing up their spiritual, like their aim, so to speak. But in addition to this, Jesus says that this kind does not come out by fast, except by fasting and prayer, which implies that my fasting and continued prayer helps deal with the human weakness that can sometimes limit me serving the Lord well. And in this case, casting out a demon. So the authority was there, but that's not the only factor. There's all sorts of other things that can mess up the exercise of the power or the authority that Christ gave them. I hope that gives you some things to consider. Number eight, Revelation Crusader says, hi, Mike, love the channel. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. I'm, I'm excited to, or a or woman, I'm excited that you do. Um, what are your thoughts and opinions on Ezekiel 38 and 39, as well as what it may mean for us? Oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to really disappoint you now. <laughs> Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, the last chapters of Ezekiel, I mean, and I say last chapters, a large portion of Ezekiel, I find very challenging and I don't, I'm not settled on my views on the passage. So let me give you an idea of what he's talking about. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. And the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, Um, Then he goes on, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you and be guarded for them. After many days you will be mustered, in the latter years you will go against the land Here's where we're at. The land that is restored from the war. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been in continual waste. Its people were brought out from the the people and now dwell securely, all of them. Then he's just going on and describes them. You're going to advance. You're going to come in like a cloud. You're going to fight them. There's going to be these battles that go on. You could could read through Ezekiel 38 and 39. Then there's more prophecy against Gog. There's more um, statements against the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal and all this kind of thing. Um, now, here is where it gets a little challenging. Gog and Magog are mentioned in other places in scripture, or at least seem to be, there, there seems to be other places that are connected to this, right? In Revelation in particular. Revelation alludes to many passages in the Old Testament. So, you then get into a discussion. Is this a past tense thing, or is it a future thing? Now, many who are, like myself, a futurist, they would think that this refers to a future time, or at least will be recapitulated in some sense there'll be something like it happening again and so debates went out years ago and there were there were studies presented where they were like Gog and Magog this refers to like Russia or maybe Russia and Iran and they have various reasons why they think this is the case now that was back in like the 90s early 2000s and maybe even a little earlier probably actually 80s 90s I guess 70s maybe even Um, but the political stuff that they were expecting to happen didn't really happen. And so now Gog and Magog, they're like, no, 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 no. These are like the Arab states. They're the Arab states. That's what Gog and Magog are. And if you know, if you guys listen to me talk about in time stuff, you know that I'm really hesitant to postulate on this kind of stuff. I feel like what we do is we assume too much on the text. We start acting a little bit reckless with the Bible. We we don't treat it the way we carefully study Romans. We treat prophecy sometimes like we're just allowed to like connect the dots any way we want. And we also assume that the termination of these prophecies will be in our near future. And so we look at our political landscape today, and we guess at how these things might be fulfilled today. I'm not really ready to do that. I don't really have an answer for you as far as what Gog and Magog are about. If you're going to ask for an application into our lives, I'm going to suggest The obvious application is that God is the one in charge, even of various ungodly nations, and that he's accomplishing his goals and his purposes. And if you feel like that's not good application, that's fine. Personally, I think it's profoundly important to know that God is still in control, even in the midst of all the chaos of human desires and ambitions and plots and plans and all the stuff that goes on in the nations, that ultimately God's in control. There you go. Some thoughts for you. Stess S. says, How do you help a fellow Christian, including your spouse, deal with and overcome alcoholism biblically? Um, there's a few things here. One of them, let me give you a few specific points. And one of my favorite verses, you're going to be like, why is this your favorite verse? <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation's overtaking you that is not common to man. One of the temptations, one of the things we'll consider when we're dealing with a regular addictive behavior is to say that we're powerless to overcome it. Um, this is not true, but it can feel that way because you've tried so many times and you start to think like, maybe I just don't, maybe I just don't have the power. Like I don't have the ability to overcome this. And that's not true. That is like an attitude of despair that we, we don't want to feed. I don't want to tell people you have no control. You can't say no to this thing. That's A, that's not true. B, it, it traps them in it. It's actually very cruel. To tell someone who does have a choice that they don't have a choice because they believe you and then they continue engaging in the sinful behavior that they're doing. This verse refutes this. It says, whatever your temptation is, it's of the same kind, whatever, you know, in some sense, it's similar to the temptation all people have, but God is faithful and he, what? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to, and here's the bad news, endure it. I have to endure it. I I won't just pray and I won't feel tempted anymore. He'll provide me a way to endure, to go through the temptation without having sinned. Some people summarize this verse as God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not true. Um, (laughs) That's not true at all. He won't give you more temptation than you can say no to. He's not even giving you the temptation. Better to say it this way. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to say no. He's actually gonna make sure it doesn't get to that state. This is one important biblical truth for those who struggle with any sin, including myself. And I don't, I don't like it. And I love it at the same time. Okay. Cause I don't want to be so responsible. You mean every time I've done that sin, it was totally my fault. Like, <laughs> like other things, stressors were there, but I made a choice to sin and it was, it was my fault in the end that I did it. I don't like that, but it's also incredibly hopeful because it means that the next time you're tempted, you don't have to do it. So that's one thing I'd recommend. Another thing, um, is Proverbs which tells us, um, let me find the verse for you. Proverbs 23:31. Advice to those who struggle with alcohol. First, it talks about the problems: who has woe, who has sorrow, strife, complaining, all this stuff. It's um, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. So th- these are people who are um, uh, effectively, you could say they're alcoholics, they're drunks, or whatever the term you want to use for it is, right? Here's some advice. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. Do not look at it. So the the advice I'm going to give is this. Don't just don't drink. Don't even ponder it. Don't even be thinking about it. Don't spend any time looking at it. If you're watching TV and they're showing people drinking, this is a trigger for you. You need to turn the channel. You need to stop watching the program. If you're around people, being around people, find what your triggers are, the things that even lead you to the place where you're just in this flood of drinking and don't go down that road. Another way to put it is um, another verse I'll share with you. That's not how you spell that. (laughs) Okay, which is Romans 13, 14. Uh, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So making no provision is a really key thing here in fighting sin. That is to say, uh, provisions are like, say, I'm going to go camping. I mean, I bring provisions to go camping. I have a tent. I have food with me. I have like fire starting equipment, that kind of thing. I'm going to go camping. Well, don't have those provisions. You can't go camping if you don't have any of those provisions in your house. You can't drink if you don't have any alcohol in the home. You you can't drink if you're not going to go to a Events where you're gonna be tempted to drink it's gonna be presented to you. So make no provision I think one of the biggest battles that we all have and I speak totally from personal experience Although I do think it's consistent with what scripture says here I think one of the biggest battles we have with regular sins that we repeatedly go through we repeatedly commit these sins Is that we try to fight them way too late. We tend to fight our sins Um, Okay, it's not my first beer. I'm gonna stop. It's like my third beer then i'm gonna i'm gonna stop after three and sometimes like if it's, let's say, you know, if you want to have a beer, that's fine. I don't care. But let's say you're struggling with alcoholism. This is your issue. You're dealing with uh, addictive, sinful, alcoholic use. Don't even have one, right? Like there's someone who's looking at images they shouldn't look at online, but they should have paid attention when they were just w- watching sort of less Sexual images that were just not healthy for them to see—that they were stirring their heart, that were causing things when they were just gl- looking for too long at a, at a at a at a person that they were attracted to. You know, as opposed to just looking around like a normal human being, but they were just like looking to look to lust. Um, and Jesus gets at this when he says, "Like, hey, you know." You know, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. He wants us to realize that the beginning issues, the beginning state of sin, that that is already where we've lost the fight. That's already where we've given up. So that means you draw your boundaries against sin way back. When you know this is a sin you struggle with, you draw your personal boundaries very far away from that sin because it's easy to, I like this analogy, and then I'll move on to the next question, but it's easy to put out a fire when it's just barely begun it's very hard to put out a fire 10 20 minutes later like literal fires i'm talking about if you you know you start a little fire you could stomp it out real quick now ideally you don't want to start a fire at all but if you're if if you notice it starts happening stop it when it's small quit early quit at the very beginning don't wait to fight that battle cuz that's just another way we talk ourselves into sinning oh just a little bit just a little bit more just a little bit Question number 10 from Iv- Ivana um, Liju James, who says, Hey, Pastor Mike, why were the families of people who broke the law like Achan killed with their families? Uh, why were they not killed alone? Thank you for what you do. So this is one of those things I want to acknowledge a couple things. things. Um, obviously, I can acknowledge this is an uncomfortable passage of scripture where Achan, he, he, they go to destroy, um, is it Ai? One of, the, one of the first cities that they approach. I want to say it was ai i don't think it was jericho no no it was the battle at ai that went bad because he did it at jericho if i recall so at jericho they would destroy everything if i remember correctly Aiken takes some items from jericho and he hides them in his tent implying his family knows about it he hides them in his tent and then he lies about it and then they go out to war and many people die as a result because god's favor won't be with them because they're not Uh, destroying these items instead they're going to borrow from the from the people in the land and that's one of the dangers of israel is that they borrow the the (laughs) idols and the ungodliness from the people in the land so then they slowly find out by process of like going before the lord and asking who's who is it finally Achan gets caught out and then his whole family's killed um who is his family and we don't know um here's one thing we don't know lots of stuff we don't know about this passage his family could have been him, his wife, and his 22-year-old son. I don't, I don't know. Um, so we don't know what that was. Um, so we're not really sure who was killed there. But the only thing in the text that indicates why the family might have been involved would be that it was hidden in his tent, which implies that they knew. Now, if they were old enough to be accountable for things then that would explain it right there. They were all part of the rebellion against God. God gave a clear word and they were openly rebelling and then it caused death in Israel. And that might explain it. There's a thought for you. And we'll go to question 11. Reese Baptista says, where was Daniel when the three young Hebrew young men were thrown into the fire? Also, why kittens? Seriously, why kittens? (laughs) You don't like my cats? Oh, that's too bad. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll go to your kitten question in just a minute. Reese Baptista wants to know where was Daniel when the three young men were thrown to the fire. Um, this is a great question. Nobody, I don't think. Well, I say nobody knows. Maybe someone's actually got a good answer and I just haven't heard it. Um, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go before Nebuchadnezzar, they're all commanded to worship and pray only to Nebuchadnezzar, and then they refuse to. Um, where was Daniel? Like if he was there, you'd think he'd get in trouble too, right? But he doesn't get in trouble, but it doesn't record him failing. Now it's possible he failed. He actually worshiped this false image and they just don't record it out of embarrassment. That's possible, but it doesn't seem very likely because that same Daniel, he puts his life on the line and openly prays when he's told he can't pray to God. He openly does it. And he does it out in the, out on the windowsill where everyone can see him. Right, so he doesn't show any cowardice. He put his life on the line when they decided not to eat of the food that the kingdom was king was giving them because it was not kosher for them to eat according to the law, and they were potentially going to die. And they risked their so he risks risks his life several times. He never shows cowardice or fear. He stands before um, um, is it um, Balshazar? Well, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, another another later king, Med king, Persian king, and uh, and he again just like. You could tell he does no fear. He doesn't care what the guy does to him. So, So that doesn't seem very likely. But Daniel had a very high up position in the kingdom. So one theory is that Daniel's actually just on a trip for the king. He may have been gone for months at a time, for all we know. He might have been stationed somewhere else. And so he would have just not been around for this to happen. That's a possibility. He just wasn't around. Or it could be that for some reason Daniel was the exception because he had a higher rank than the other guys did. So maybe he was just kind of like ignored. this policy. That's possible as well. Remember, um, the, uh, Daniel was really a favorite of the king. And so perhaps that was the case as well. We're just guessing. We just know he wasn't involved in the, in the story. Number 12, Isaac O'Brien, pastor Mike, I was wondering uh, about how a modern Christian would deal with demonic activity. You only see in movies, priests doing exorcism, exorcisms, but what would a pastor do if this was happening today? Um, yeah, so, you, movies, I'm just going to beg everybody, Isaac, I I don't think you're doing this at all, but for everybody listening, please, please, please do not learn your theology about demons or exorcisms from movies. Even if it says, based on a true story, that's literally just something they say to make you more scared when you watch it. Please, don't get your theology from these guys. Um So even priests who deal with this kind of thing, I don't think it's going to look very much like it is in these films. And any similarity would be coincidental. The films are just trying to make money. Okay, These are money-making ventures. That's all they are. That being said, um, I I would look at how Jesus dealt with demonic activity. He came and he commanded a demon to go out. And Paul, in the book of Acts, he does the same thing. There's this woman following them, uh, kind of like making a ruckus and drawing awkward attention to them, possibly um, trying to make it look like she represents them. And she's like this demonically possessed fortune teller type lady. And, you know, uh, I think it's Paul who turns around and just casts out the demon. Like, it's just something they just do. It's not something that takes like 17 hours of effort. In the texts of scripture, it just tends to usually just be something they do. Now, there is the case where that it didn't work. And then he's like, yeah, you know, there's an issue of faith, possible perversity in your own hearts. And fasting and prayer. So perhaps then add fasting and prayer to that list. But, um, yeah, that's all I, I have to say about that. Um, yeah, you might look up for mo- other guys who've actually dealt more with the demonic on a more regular basis. Um, I don't have any stories that I'd like to share with you anyway. So, all right. <laughs> One to 13. Rick O'Donnell, what do you think of William Webb's redemptive movement model for hermeneutics? My pastor is embracing it, but it seems almost heretical to me. Oh, uh, Rick, I'm sorry, man. I don't, i don't william webb's redemptive movement i'm not familiar with that i'll, I'll tell you what rick if you're still in the live chat mm-hmm. and the mods i hope some, one of the mods is listening um if rick if you can give like a one comment description of what concerns you about it specifically i'd be happy to respond to that but and if someone catches it and sends it to me i'm happy to look at that uh, once it gets sent over to me here but i'll go on to question number 14 Kristen linker is intercessory prayer a spiritual gift possibly within the spiritual gift of faith that Paul mentions in first Corinthians 12, nine, any knowledge you have on intercessory prayer is appreciated. Thank you, Mike. Um, okay. I'm going to have a few thoughts on this. So let's first look at first Corinthians 12, nine, and we'll ask the question is intercessory prayer possibly included in this verse as a spiritual gift. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit. So, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. To another, the word of knowledge. And these are these are lists of different gifts of the spirit, right? Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Of course, this seems as though it might come at a moment, not necessarily something they always have all the time, but the spirit gave them that to minister to others. Um, in other words, I'm saying it's not necessarily like you're in the office of someone who has words of wisdom all the time. You could be, or not. I think this is just talking about a moment. Uh, to another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same spirit. Could this faith be a reference to intercessory prayer? Um, well, I, I mean, to me, uh, faith by the same spirit, the idea of being given the gift of faith here is not, not salvific faith. It's not like, I believe in Jesus, therefore I had that gift of faith. But rather, I'm already Christian, and the Holy Spirit is showing me he's going to do something that God's going to do something. So I pray with great confidence. I would say a person who's interceding may or may not have that. They may or may not have this confidence in what God is going to do. Have you guys had this happen as Christians? You're praying. And there's just a, I've had this happen several times. Um, there's just this strong sense of confidence about what God is going to do. Not because I want it, but because I, that would be my heart. My heart can influence my my things there as well. But because I just think the Lord's revealing to me what He's going to do, and so I so I pray with greater faith. I've had this happen with someone. I was praying; he had a, a cancer diagnosis, and we prayed over him. And I just had this what very strange and abnormal, very strong sense of faith that God was going to heal him. And I didn't I didn't do much different. I just prayed. I didn't I didn't proclaim like, "Thus says the Lord, you're healed." I just prayed, you know. And so, yeah, I think the gift of faith here relates to intercessory prayer. It can. But does that make intercessory prayer in like an office? Like I'm an intercessory prayer person who does this all the time because I have a gift of faith. I just think we're going, we're stretching the text a little bit to say that. But let me add this. There's no reason to think that these things are the only things that the Holy Spirit does for us, gives us words of wisdom, words of knowledge, word of faith, or a, a, Faith by the Spirit, gifts of healings by the same Spirit, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. I don't think these are meant to be exhaustive things. I think that the Holy Spirit can give you whatever it is that God is giving you. And God may call you to intercessory prayer as a regular, like this is something you find yourself focusing on. You find yourself, you you have more longevity in prayer than other people. You have, perhaps you do have a greater faith, in which case you might connect it to that specific gift of, of faith. Um, I just think that we need to not limit the work of the Spirit to these specific categories. Which one of these do I have and when do I have them? No, no, the idea is that it's the the Holy Spirit working in us. Um, Mm. I hope that helps, yeah. There's several other lists that Paul gives about gifts of the Spirit or ways in which the Spirit manifests in the church, and they're not always consistent because I don't think they're meant to be exhaustive. 15. Adam A says, what are your thoughts on churches that require classes and interviews before becoming a member? I think we should be actively involved in a church, but it seems like steps that aren't biblical. Um, I'm totally open on both sides here. So I'm, I'm cool with the church doing that and not doing that. So here's just my opinion. And here's why. Life is really weird and complicated. And it may be that you're in a small church environment where relationships come easy and naturally and discipleship comes easy and naturally and without going through like a class or without getting an interview they just know you because they know you because that guy brought you to christ and he gets lunch with you every tuesday you know what i mean and so he vouches for you he's like yes i brought someone to the lord and they're gonna be part of our church and so it's just easy peasy but then let's say you're part of another church and then this church people are there's less interrelation you know interconnected relationships there's a lot more anonymity and there's a lot of people coming and saying, I'm going to be a member. I'm going to get baptized. And the re- leaders of the church realize we have a problem here. A lot of people are coming to Christ, we think, but they're not getting discipled. We It's not happening naturally and organically in the church. So they create a structure to try to make it happen. This isn't a bad thing. And they go, we'll have some classes they go through, new believers courses, because I feel like there's a need for this, right? Lots of new believers, but not maybe a lot of discipleship happening in their lives. And so then perhaps they require you to um, uh, go to these classes so that you understand what you're part of as you're part of the church. Now, this can be bad. It can get weird. Like If you want me to go through six months of classes before I get baptized, I'm going to say that's actually unbiblical, right? Like, it doesn't take six months to learn the gospel. That's what baptism's about. Now, on top of that, if you want to say, well, you know, okay, you're baptized, but if you want to be a member of our church, you got to go through all these classes. Even then, I'm a little hesitant It doesn't mean the classes are wrong, but perhaps we should lower, just my advice (laughs) for whatever it's worth, we should consider lowering the requirement for membership. Right? Because it's like you're part of our fellowship in Christ. Doesn't mean you agree with us on every doctrinal issue. And so I would say there could be a baseline. Core doctrines. But then beyond that, I, I, I think it's weird to require all that for someone to be a member. So if, if these classes get really long, they start getting very involved and they start getting very nuanced and specific. I'm a little concerned about it. But I do see the benefit of it. Um, churches that have a lot of structure here and a lot of requirements for membership also tend to have, the people in the church tend to know more scripture. They tend to be better equipped to to evangelize others. So there's a lot of practical benefits in those classes. But there's a message it sends, potentially, that is like, you're not really part of us unless you've achieved a certain level of education and knowledge in these areas. And I think in the early church, belonging comes and then comes discipleship, right? Belonging first, discipleship next, as opposed to discipleship first, belonging next. I hope that helps. All right. Number 16, Stephanie Morse says, what's the best way to respond to LDS friends who say in the beginning, that phrase in the beginning in the Bible, means only the beginning of our world and say then it's possible Jesus was created before he created all things here. Um, So I'm assuming this is about John 1 because we get the phrase in the beginning in in Genesis. We also have it in John. So let's look at it here in John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, this phrase in the beginning is in the, it's in the bookends, verses 1 and 2. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word's with God, and the Word is God. Okay, already, Jesus is God. So, he's not a created being. Like, that's not, that option's not on the table with the teaching of John 1, 1. Jesus is God, right? The Word is with God, and the Word is God. If you read on in John 1, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is obviously Jesus he's talking about. So, him being created is not an option. God's not created. Then it goes on and it says all things were made through him. Everything was made through Jesus. So if everything's made through him, if that's just a blanket thing, like here's everything, everything was made through him, then he's not made, but it goes on. And John makes it even more clear. And without him, nothing was made that was made. It doesn't say the earth or our world. It's just like, if anything's in the category was made, it was made through Jesus. (laughs) If it's in the category of created, it was made through Jesus. Therefore, Jesus could not have created himself. He couldn't have been created through himself. This doesn't make sense. He wouldn't have been there to create. He can't be the agency of his own creation. That's illogical. This is irrational. Um, so that, that's John one, but, but we can also, uh, I mean, we, I don't know how we can make this stronger than it is, but we can kind of support it even more in Genesis one, because John is actually tying into Genesis one with the terminology here. He uses the phrase in the beginning and he talks about how all things were made through him. Then he talks about light as well. He goes on so that light, his life was the light of man because he's connecting it to the beginning of creation in Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then John says, Jesus, uh, everything was made through Jesus, but he calls Jesus the word, the Lagos. And in Genesis, it says, God creates by speaking. Let there be light. Now, do we do we picture God with like lungs and, and vocal cords saying, let there be light? I don't think so. I think this is all Meant to teach us, you know, uh, theological truths about God. He creates by speaking things into existence. Meaning, He creates just through the sheer power of of His of His ability. He doesn't have to use anything to make. He just boom. It's in. He speaks it into into place. Jesus is the one through whom the Father speaks things into place. We have Father, Son, and Spirit all in the first three verses, right? God, um, the Father speaking. The Son is the Word, and the Spirit's hovering over the face of the waters. So we have all three. Yeah. So back to your question, Stephanie, I'll ask it again. What's the best way to respond to LDS friends who say in the beginning means only the beginning of our world. Well, is to point out that in John one, there's one, a connection with, um, Genesis one, which is more than just our world. It's the heavens and the earth. And this is all inclusive. He then goes on to describe stars and everything, everything there is in the universe. That's one thing. Genesis one, there's a connection there. Also this category of everything that was made. Was made through him. Okay. All things, <laughs> all things. If it was made, it was made through him. So that would include every every created thing in existence as a blanket category. And that's how John probably understood that as well. And we should too. Um, let's go to the next question, number 17. Jesse Crocus says, I'm getting married in two weeks. And I'm hit with doubts and worries that my struggle with porn will lead, to, uh, lead into my marriage. My fiance knows about it. Do you have any advice? Mm-hmm. Jesse, um, I'd recommend a few things. First, like props to you for being willing to talk about this. That's really good. I think you should talk about it with um, people who can hold you accountable. But I say, that, I say this word carefully, accountable, because here's what accountability often looks like in our lives. I tell somebody about my issues and it's their responsibility to call me and check up on me. And then I'm supposed to not lie to them about it. Um, That's not how accountability is going to work. Accountability is when I tell them if I mess up, it's not when they ask me, it's when I initiate the issue with them and I talk to them about it. But yeah, so the advice I gave earlier on the alcohol question I'm going to give to you here. Um, The verse I would go to is in Job. Um, I'm going to find the verse for you real quick. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job is a married man. He's not opposed to the idea of looking at a woman with desire. He has a wife. He does that. But he's made a covenant with his eyes. Job made a deal with his eyes. And he's speaking here about like the godliness that he's tried to have in his life. And the deal he made with his eyes is to not gaze at a virgin. Obviously, okay. Okay. If you're a a normal human, you understand what Job is saying here. (laughs) He's saying, the deal is, I will not even look to lust. I won't even look to lust. You cannot fight pornography at the point of the search engine. You have to fight it at the point of your eyes. I will not look to lust. Anything that is desirable to you, you turn away. You don't start the fire. Again, it's easy to put the fire out in the beginning. It's extremely hard to put it out later down the road. You do that you realize there's other things too. If you want to (laughs) go down this road, um, you realize that when you engage in looking at pornography, you're actually getting, you're sending money to the pornographers themselves because they're selling ads or whatever they're using to make money. You're promoting the fornication that takes place on screen. The objectification of humans, men and women, you're helping support the lifestyle of somebody who's making their living off of the porn industry you're helping make those websites bigger so they can rank up in Google search and produce more content. You're also giving to those people desires for them that belong to your spouse. And you will desire your spouse less. It also objectifies people. You you, you start looking them at them differently. They're not whole people. They're objects for pleasure. There's all kinds of things that are going on there. Um, other than that, man, I, I just say, do the most obvious things, the most obvious things to stop this sin. Do those things. It might be uncomfortable. They might be annoying, but it should be obvious. Some of the steps you should take here. All right. Number 18. And, and again, God bless you, man. Repent. The grace of God is there for you. But we got to see how big these things are. Austria's next gen says this is a little nerdy and it doesn't need to have uh doesn't have application but I know that you're also nerdy since Jesus never sinned would he not have died of old age eventually if he had if he had not been crucified or would he have Oh that's a really I've never even thought of this question okay would Jesus die of old age um yeah I think so um I I think that mankind dies because we're in a fallen condition, not because of just just the guilt of my individual sin. Although I'm thinking now about how, how Romans is worded. Um, that's a tough question. I want to say yes, because that just seems like it makes the most sense. But I'm not sure if I've actually fleshed this out enough to really answer the question. Austria's next gen. Would Jesus... Would 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 sinlessness in Jesus mean that he would never physically die of old age? Does this mean um, old age in particular is an individual punishment for sin, for individual sin? Something to think about. All right, I'm, I'm gonna. I don't know. I'm gonna ponder this. Um, but I will mention because I forgot to talk about the kitties, my cats. Why do I love kittens? Look, I like dogs. I like cats. I like fish. I just don't like things that I have to keep in a tiny little cage, except for fish, because you give an environment to live in. Like, I I mean, I like the animals. I don't like the idea of keeping them in tiny little cages, like hamsters, like at least give them somewhere to run around or something. I just like animals. I like animals and pets, and I think they're great. Um, We have cats. Coincidentally, we have cats. We we actually went to the pound. me and my wife, true story, looking for dog looking for a dog. We went to several pounds looking for a specific dog and wait till we found one that we really wanted to have. And we're having a real hard time finding a dog. And my wife when we went to the pound, um, says, let's go look at the cats. Like after like our fourth or fifth pound visit. And we, we go there and there's a particular cat, just an older female cat who she just falls in love with. And we weren't intending to come home with the cat, but before we left, we're like, we'll take her. So, uh, that's how we got started. Now, once you have cats, it's easier just to keep having cats. So I'm, I'd be happy with either one. I'm a cat and dog person. Um, all right. I think I spent more time on that than the actual important questions. All right, number 19. Uh, Jay Anonymous says, how would you explain 1 John 3, 4, which says sin is a tr- uh, transgression of the law to someone trying to convince you to follow the Mosaic law? I watched your Hebrews, Hebrew Roots video and don't see this address, So, um... I'm pretty confident I do address this in those videos, but there's like six videos I have on the Hebrew Roots Movement. I'll put a link below in the video description, give me like half an hour after the stream's over. I'll put a link there to my entire playlist on the Hebrew Roots Movement. And then you can click the playlist, that may help. But let's look at the passage, I'm still gonna try and answer your question. 1 John 3, 4, the way this talking point goes is people say, what is sin, right? And they, well, sin is practicing lawlessness. Right? Or transgressing the law. That's what sin is. And if that's what sin is, then the law of Moses still applies to you because you're sinning if you break the law. The question we have, okay, yes, in a typical Jewish content context, uh, Torah or law is going to be talking about the law of Moses, but they also use the word law for various other things. So let me do a quick... I wonder if I can do this really quick. I don't know. Sometimes with things I'm thinking, this will take a minute for me to pull together, but it might be fruitful for you guys. Hopefully it's not just losing your attention. Um, Let me do this. Um, Lawlessness in the Greek is uh, anomia. Now that word anomia, I'm gonna do a quick uh, search here. In the New Testament, it occurs 15 times in 13 different verses and you won't be able to see this all on your screen well i guess i could do this here's the places that anomia occurs and um what i'm looking for here is it only occurs the one time in john first john is right there lawlessness um And then what what I'm also looking for is in John itself. This is, again, I'm worried that this will drag things down. Some people ask me, like, Mike, do a video where you walk through your study process, like how you study the Bible. And what I, what people don't realize is how boring that would be for them. Like, this is what it would look like. Okay, let me just, let me just look up the word law. I'm going to work up the word law in, in, in James. I'm curious to know each time that the word, the book of James uses the word law. This is something that I think might be helpful for this context. Okay, James uses law, let's see, about 10 times. Let's just read through. This is I'm not kidding. This is what I would do. In James 1, in James one twenty five, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Okay, so there's like the law of liberty that James talks about. James 2, 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. If you show partiality, you commit sin. You're convicted by the law as transgressors for wh- whoever. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Okay, he's using the law there in the context of... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm James. So was being 1 John. 1 John has different contexts for the word law. Oh, I'm just going to have to do this. I'm going to have to reference you guys to my actual study. Um... What I want to focus on with John, First John, though, I was going to walk you through my process, but it's going to take too long. So in 1 John, the emphasis that we have is that the law is love, that there is, a, there is a law that we're to have, the law that John talks about in his gospel, that Jesus says, I give you a new law. The law is to love one another as I've loved you, that this is the law of Christ, this is what uh, in Galatians, Paul talks about in his writings. He talks about the law of Christ, that you love each other. Love is the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law because it does no harm to a neighbor. So all of these things are connected to this idea of lawlessness. So lawlessness, sin is lawlessness, is breaking this law, this new law that in James, he talks or first John he talks about this new commandment. I write to you. That's the word I'm looking for is commandment. Uh, the new commandment I write to you is that you love one another. And this is the lawlessness that he wants us to avoid. So if you look at James in the context of not Torah being the Old Testament law, and you realize the New Testament makes it clear Christians are not under the law, but then talks about us being not being without law, where we have the law of Christ. First John talks about what the law of Christ is. It's the new law Christ gave us, love each other, love love one another, which is consistent with the law, but it's not the same thing as the law of the Old Testament. And then this is how we apply it. All right, well, I clumsily tried to take you through a process that usually would take me like 40 minutes. Um, number 19 or, or was that 19, 20? All right. Do you have any tips? This is from Kyle Kemper. Do you have any tips on any, on building spiritual intimacy with your spouse? Um, Kyle, I'm probably not a pro at this. I would ask my wife actually what she would suggest building spiritual intimacy with your spouse. Um, one is to try to have fellowship together where you're not, you're not, Just, you want to remove the one-upsmanship where it's like, who knows more than the other person. This is the thing that I think makes it so people don't want to talk to you in a real, it's one thing to have a teacher who knows more than you, but it's something else. Like here's me who studies the Bible all the time, right? And it's easy for me to be like to my wife, like, oh, I know, I know that I know that I know that where when she does bring spiritual insights or thoughts, it's more like I'm testing them rather than just fellowshipping about them. I want to create an environment where we can fellowship on those issues. And she doesn't think I'm like constantly testing her correctness and her perfect expressions of all those things. And, and so I, I want to create that environment, spiritual intimacy like that, praying for each other. How about, here's a great question that I think helps is I asked my wife, how can I pray for you? And then I'll stop and pray for her. Um, tell her how she can pray for me. Tell her about the struggles you're going through. I think those things help um, going to services together, worshiping together, those are all things that help as well. All right, now, last thing we've got, bonus thing, which is from Rick O'Donnell. He had question 13, and I was I was not familiar with the question he was asking with this, this group that he was asking about. And he says this, my short summary is this, that the scripture, this is, I'm gonna go down, 13. Uh, the short answer is this, the scripture should be compared with the historical context to see how it differs. If scripture is more restrictive, you should interpret that to mean the redemptive movement is to be more restrictive. And if less restrictive, to be less restrictive. The examples used in RMM are slavery, the role of women in the church, homosexuality, etc. Um. Now, this is not what Rick thinks. This is how they model things. Um, so, Let's take the, this issue slavery. Okay, if slavery is if the if scripture talks about slavery and it's more restrictive than the environment they were in, we are to be more restrictive. And if it's less restrictive, we're to be less restrictive. Here's my concern with this, Rick. I think scripture does I do have a problem with this hermeneutic just from how you've how you've worded it, and I'll try to explain it quickly. Um Scripture gives teachings that do apply to context that was going on, the history of the time, that really does matter. But when you ask, is this more restrictive or less restrictive? This implies like a, um, like I want to, I want to ultimately use the scripture to do something the scripture didn't do. I want to like maybe find a trajectory. Okay, so for instance, let's talk about women in the church. So maybe I find that biblically, Women had more authority and more higher roles and more respect than they did in their culture at the time. And this is true. Biblically speaking, even the, there's passages that people say, oh, well, I think that that's, um, that's oppressive. But let's say that I want to do this trajectory thing that people do. Now, not that it's totally invalid, but it can't, but, but making it a hermeneutical principle gets scary to me. And the trajectory thing is like this. Here's women's roles in the first century. Here's women's roles in the New Testament. Well, in the New Testament, women's roles are higher than the first century. So we're going to draw an arrow and we're going to keep drawing it out. And when we get to the 21st century, we're going to actually be doing things that seem totally inconsistent with the first century because we're just saying less restrictive. And we're going to keep going less restrictive until there's no rules at all. Or you say with um, with other issues, you can do the same thing. Homosexuality. You could be like, well, okay, yeah, they condemned it, but, but he said this positive thing, and so we're going to draw an arrow and kind of move away. And this can end up with, let's say that you skip all the interpretation phases of this hermeneutical method that you talked about, which you called um, redemptive movement model for hermeneutics. William Webb's redemptive movement model for hermeneutics. If it's what I suspect it may be from your description, then what you can do is if you if you just strip out all the interpretation moments, all the hermeneutics, all the model, what you actually have is teaching and application in the church that actually disagrees with the clear teachings of the New Testament. And it does so because they think, well, but there's like, there's like it's a movement, like it's moving over this way. Eventually it comes out this direction. And um, if that's the case, then this is just a clever way to disregard scripture. And what it ends up being, if you were in the New Testament times and you were trying to oppress women, and then the New Testament's giving you this teaching about how they're equal heirs, co-heirs in in the grace of Christ, that they're that they could do prophecy and things like this, that there were disciples sitting at the feet of Jesus, which was weird for a woman to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi like that. Um, you know, this was a place they wouldn't normally give. So you go, hey, um, I'm in the new I'm in the New Testament era, and I'm finding that women have much more rights and, and roles and, and respect than I'm used to giving them because of my culture. Well, if you reject that because of your culture, you're being foolish. Like you need to take what scripture says. But now let's go forward 2,000 years and now we're in the 21st century and there's people going, I know the Bible says this, but I feel that's too restrictive. So I'm going to use my culture and my current standards to interpret how I think it should be. And I'm going to draw an arrow from the Bible to me. Basically, I've, uh, we've, we've, we've evolved we or become more advanced. Now we get it better than they did back then. Um, this is just a way of making my culture the authority which is the same mistake that the people who were oppressing women would have done in the first century if they didn't take the scripture seriously. I think the Bible provides us with our guide here. So if that's what you mean, if I'm on on there, Rick, then I think that that will help, hopefully. Yeah. Here's how you test it. You take out all the clever hermeneutics, all the clever, clever, clever stuff, and you just say, here's the application they have for me. And you read it against the New Testament. And you see, if I didn't have this complicated hermeneutical trickery going on, am I actually living out the opposite of what it says here in the text? And if that's the case, you should go with the word of God and not with the uh, clever devices of man. So that is all. I will link the Hebrew roots movement down below. I'll give a much better description of the details of the first John passage. The law in first John is the law of love. I'll just remind you guys of that. And I think that um, that puts it in the context of sin as lawlessness where apart from the law of Christ, it's when you import um, obedience to the Mosaic law and don't see Jesus as the fulfillment of it and you ignore a lot of New Testament teaching that you can get to that place. All right. I think that's it. I will see you guys on Monday for the next installment of the Mark series. I have a new video coming hopefully Wednesday. It may or may not be. It's taking me forever to edit the thing on the Passion Project. Next video coming out on that topic. And um, we reviewed the Book of Colossians in the Passion Project. And then a week from today, Friday, we'll be back on for the live stream and hopefully you guys will be joining me. So take care. Lord bless you. Keep your eyes on God. And remember this, that with all the complicated stuff that comes into interpreting scripture, if you get confused by some of the steps and some of the complexities that people give you, just go back to the simple reading of the text, what you know the most, what's the clearest to you and make sure you're following that because that's where there's, there's great safety for us. All right. Take care.